This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. And welcome back to the City of God podcast, where we are weekly exploring today's biggest cultural issues all through the lens of God's infallible word. I'm Rob Pacienza, and as always, joined by my co-host, John Rabe. John, great to see you today. Great to see you, Rob. I'm looking forward to the discussion that we have today, a repeat guest. We're going to get into some very interesting stuff, very applicable to uh, parents and children, especially. Absolutely. Uh, We're joined here today uh, by my good friend, uh, Dr. Joel Satterley, who is the headmaster of Westminster Academy, and he is here to talk about uh, education as a whole. In America, a lot to unpack, a lot to uncover. We're going to talk about higher education, public education, and uh, the mission field that Joel has committed his career to, Christian education in particular. I think it's important to say that this podcast is produced in conjunction with the Institute for Faith and Culture, of which uh, Dr. Satterley is a contributor to the Institute. So Joel, welcome back to the City of God. Thanks for having me. And just to, uh, for those who are not in the South Florida area who will watch this and listen to this, it's just worth noting, Westminster Academy is the K through 12 school founded by Pre-K. Oh, Pre-K, Pre-K, yeah, 12. Yeah, thank yep. you. Uh, founded by Dr. D. James Kennedy and when now? How long? 1971. 1971. So we're in the 53rd, uh, 54th year of, uh, of existence now here for Westminster. And uh, for those outside of South Florida, this is a very, and I, I don't mean to embarrass either of you guys who have been involved in this. Rob, you went there. This is a, uh, a very highly regarded educational institution Absolutely. here in South Florida, Christian or otherwise, uh, very high. So yeah. that's that's the kind of the credentials that we're dealing with. That yeah. we talk with. Christian College Prep School that has an incredible reputation, yes. not only throughout the region, everywhere I travel, uh, when I tell them Westminster Academy mm-hmm. Fort Lauderdale has a reputation and a legacy across the nation. And so we're mm-hmm. grateful for our founder, but also grateful for uh, the continuing mm-hmm. of that legacy through Dr. Satterley. Yes. Uh, so, Joel, let's let's dive in. Let's start uh, first with higher education. I think the three of us would agree, but love to get your perspective that higher education Education in the 21st century is no longer about academic achievement, but it's about indoctrination. Yeah, very, very much. We've seen it uh, very recently um, on national display. Used to be, of course, um, uh, that field was uh, one driven by meritocracy. Uh, a good example of that I just recently um, found some time. Uh, uh, to watch uh, Christopher Nolan's uh, biopic Oppenheimer, yes, and and to see the gathering of of minds and the rallying of the American higher education system around that that project is not something we would see today. Um, it, there would there would be uh, difficulty. In fact, there's a, a great uh, just just saw it the other night. It's still fresh. There's a great scene where Matt Damon is playing General Leslie Groves is asked. In 1953, if he would have cleared Oppenheimer according to these standards, and he quickly right. said, "No, but I wouldn't have cleared any of them with mm-hmm. these current That's set of standards of how how it was just an example of how things had changed." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it, it, you know, there's a, obviously a major cultural component to this, to the reason that uh, education has changed, and that we don't, uh, on average, produce the minds that we used to produce. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you go back, uh, you've seen various articles and uh, memes even about this, but you go back and look at questions that a school kid would have answered in the 17 or 1800s, and and you couldn't get grad graduate students to answer those same questions now. Um, So we've had sort of a dumbing down of America, but this is 
at least part of that. There may be multiple causes in that, but would you say that that this change in education is at least a, a significant contributor to that dumbing down of America? Yeah, I don't don't think there's any question that's true. Um, to your point, we can we can look at some of those things that are his, historical um, artifacts to see that. Yeah, but but it's as education has shifted its aim, ultimately, and moved away from uh, what what it was intended to do: train minds. Mm-hmm. You know, even if we're thinking secularly, doesn't it, just in that realm, right? Um, to train minds to becoming much more an instrument of socialization and has become something else entirely. Um, so when your aim changes, the results will. If you could just uh, explain that a little bit further, because that's a really interesting point. The difference in those aims, the difference between, uh, you know, building the mind and the, the socialization. What, what do the differences well, look like in education there? Yeah, I think if you look at in the history of our country, when the North American church is strong and, and the North American family is strong, then the school is freed to be the school, mm-hmm. uh, to be the, to be the school, to be the place where education is pursued, academic learning is pursued. When and and, and other institutions around it uh, are are coming to, to support. When you begin to see the erosion of those public institutions, which we've seen, people turn, our public has turned to that which has remained, the schoolhouse. And so more is foisted upon mm. that uh, that organization than was originally intended. And there's only so much time. They were not originally supposed to raise your children. They were supposed to educate your children. Now they're supposed to raise. The family raises yeah. the child. Nor were they child. supposed to feed your children, for that matter, <laughs> yeah, or right. clothe your children. That's yeah. interesting. That's right. So the temptation can be for people listening or watching this podcast, here are three guys. They're being an alarmist. <laughs> uh, they're talking about the radicals taking over all of the institutions. But we just saw it for ourselves just a just a few weeks ago we saw three ivy league presidents testify before congress and not one of them could condemn the genocide of the mm-hmm. jewish people uh that were that is blatant and clear as day um what are your thoughts on kind of what we're seeing unfold before our very eyes concerning the radicals that are being put in place in uh positions of higher education. Well, let's start by, I don't think we're, any of us are being alarmist. Yeah. Yep. Right. I mean, that may be an accusation, Sure. Yep. but that's certainly not the case uh, as, we, as we see uh, all of this unfold in front of us. Um, you know, the, the, w- to what you're mentioning, Rob, I think um, one of the things that was really interesting uh, was to examine the credentials of those people. Hmm. Uh, so just to look at a place of higher education, a place like Harvard, and Harvard's become, you know, if, if we're if we're fair, we saw you know Harvard's kind of become an easy whipping boy lately. Yep. Um, uh, certainly they've they've put themselves there, but th- th- that's where people have turned. But you look at um, uh, Dr. Gay, who was the president at the time, and with that controversy, people began to look even at her academic background, and it became hard to fathom how does how does um, such a limited um, uh, academic background land there uh, yeah. in, in the presidency. And I think you have to then ask, when you ask that why, you start working backwards. And obviously, the choice to place her there was valuing something that had not been valued before. Mm. Uh, there was a shift in those values. And so you saw other, other things, you know, 
so a lot of times it's called DEI, but other other kinds of initiatives became more important uh, than than those academic pursuits, which really begins to beg the question: Then what what are we trying to do here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these are our institutions of higher learning, and and as you said, we're we're valuing things that we didn't value before, and conversely, we're no longer valuing the things that we once valued, and mm-hmm. and that's where you really see, I think, the 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 stark contrast here. Uh, you know, we're I think. We're all in favor of things like diversity properly defined, but when that diversity starts to mean that we take uh, superficial characteristics like race and apply them above what you're actually supposed to be doing, like uh, being a scholar or being a doctor or being an airline pilot, that's where that's where things rather go south. And and a, we're applying it to the the leadership of Harvard, but this sort of this sort of uh, uh, I don't know, this sort of strange uh, idea of a d- diversity has gotten hold everywhere where there are so many things now that are not valued as they once were, and instead we're elevating these superficial characteristics to, to prominence. And schools feel the pressure to conform to that, I would imagine. Certainly. I think uh, that's why affiliations and associations uh, provide some safe haven Part of Westminster Academy's story uh, that that helps satisfy some of that concern would be being anchored in, in uh, and with Coleridge, uh, and that in that partnership and in that that uh, how how we've approached it, how Dr. Kennedy saw it, and mm-hmm. and Dr. Wackus, who who was the longtime headmaster at Westminster, saw this is having that firm anchor to be able to resist some of those shifting tides and and not worry about um, uh, answering the contemporary uh, siren song, if you will, um, to that end. Also, um, think as you as we look at this together. Um, the, you know, this is why we talk about biblical worldview. It really matters what the Institute cares about. Westminster Academy deeply cares about it. Uh, Coleridge does something Rob and I share in common, our interest in that. And, you know, John, to your point, understood biblically, diversity is a beautiful thing. Right. One, yep. one body but many parts. Yep. Yeah. You know, one day all the nations will bow. Right, all, I mean, all nations, all people of different mm-hmm. kinds. Yes, yeah. I mean, yep. it's it's an amazing, um, you know, it, it, this that d- biblical diversity is just an amazing phenomenon. But when diversity becomes an end unto itself and is driven not biblically but ideologically, now you wind up with something altogether. Al- completely broken. Mm, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I heard somebody say recently that our universities are no longer run by trustees or presidents, but really HR departments. Yeah. And the DEI um, that, that is just being just kind of inundating our, uh, our institutions that were once great in this nation and now uh, floundering. Now, okay, we've, we've picked on the Ivy Leagues. We've picked on the universities. <laughs> uh, time to look at our public school system uh, here in America as well. I mentioned in a sermon just a few weeks ago, this concept of equity grading. And it was kind of new to me, um, but it kind of explained uh, the whole concept of uh-huh. equity grading and why, once again, we're seeing kind of this indoctrination, uh, not from the perspective of uh, wanting the best for our students mm-hmm. and for our children and, and basing a system on achievement, academic achievement, uh, but once again, um, just indoctrination that is absolutely detrimental to these children, but society as a whole. Yeah. I, well, it's based on the premise that um, 
students can't handle um, defeat or they can't yeah. handle not being uh, successful. So we create artificial success. Yeah. So we're going to um, give everybody a trophy. That would be yeah. an earlier manifestation of this. Yeah. Or we're going to grade in such a way that um, we don't call it plagiarism. We call it something else. Or we um, uh, recog- give every- how you tried, so we're going we're gonna to award something um, for trying, which we know uh, in the real world that leads to bankruptcy and that doesn't go very far. Yeah. But it's driven out of a sh- this shifting mindset. And, and maybe one of the places to think about it is when we got sideways about what is the nature of man. Hmm. So when we understand rightly that man is hum, human beings are made in the image of God, we bear you know the Mago day, that's really important. But yet we're fallen, but we're endowed with certain things from our creator. I believe I read that in a document. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it sounds pretty clear. Um, <laughs> and and this is this is true in that school becomes one of the places where those things are honed and teased out and given mm-hmm. those opportunities to excel. And People, we recognize differences. Everybody doesn't read at the same rate, or everybody, everybody's not six eight. Yeah. Uh, right. Yep. I mean, you know. So, but yet somehow we've gotten confused here and said no, man is something different than that, and so we have to create this artificial environment where everybody feels good. I heard one school board president say we can't give students zeros because it would be too detrimental to their self-esteem. Yeah. So that you don't turn an assignment, you get a 50. No more zeros. Yeah, that's a starting point. Don't that's a starting up. point. Don't even take the yeah, test. Exactly. I mean. Yeah. Try telling that to your employer. Exactly. Right. Yep. right? And, and that's what's so short-sighted about this. Yeah. I remember uh, years ago, and, and I'm sure that the exact numbers have changed, but it still tells the story. I remember R.C. Sproul talking mm. about uh, test scores, and it, it, in, when tested in math, Japanese students finished number one in the world. But when you ask them how they felt about their performance, they finished well below that in the lower teens. Mm. Conversely, in the United States of America, and this is going back to the 80s or the sure. 90s, uh, America had finished something like 16th in the world in math scores. But number one, and how good they felt about how they had done in right. math, and it, we've just seen that now writ large, and and it's it's even broader, and, and it's seeped into church culture, where you have the largest, um, I think, the largest mega church in America that doesn't like to talk about sin because people get beat up enough, it makes them feel sad, it makes them feel bad about themselves. Yet when we did talk about sin, we did a lot better in this sort of thing. So. Let's talk about the 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 way that it's changed. It changed in terms of the 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 sexual brainwashing that's now taking place in public schools as well. And again, we say people, oh, you're being an alarmist. All you have to do is is flip open TikTok, where you can find hundreds, if not thousands, of videos of teachers talking about how in their classroom they help facilitate their you know, grade school children's transitions or coming out or, or so forth. Right. Uh, dry, dry queen story hour. Yeah. 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 Right. So right. We, we have a serious thing. How, how did these things even get connected? How is it happening that this sexual ideology is being promoted on a, on a pretty wide scale to even grade school children? Well, to go back to sprawl. Yeah. Ideas have consequences. Yeah, uh, yes. Right. And that's what we're seeing. My wife uh, recently, my wife Carol recently said, I think we're living in Hunger Games. Mm. Um, but, you know, 
this sort of thing. Yeah. We're talking about yeah. this, and I, I think I think there's some realization. But I mean, ideas do have consequences, and we are reaping the fruit of the sexual revolution, are we not? Sure. Uh, and and that's part of what we're part of what we're seeing. And again, you go back to what is the nature of man? Gender is something to be discovered, not something that's endowed. Not something that's endowed. That's a, that that's where we get our worldview sideways. Something for me to define. Uh, you know, uh, to be able to, uh, I heard Tim Keller, uh, the late Tim Keller in a podcast recently talking about, it was an older sermon, but he was talking about the various standards that people apply to themselves, the world standards, God's standards and their own standard. Mm-hmm. And he joked and said, some of you would rather have your own standard. And I'd like to point out to you kindly that your standards are very low. <laughs> uh, and I think that, you know, it, it I thought the point was well made about that to be able to, yeah. to, to wrestle. And so it's God's standard that we have to pay attention. Yeah. Ideas do have consequences. And God's design is that the parents would be the fundamental disciplers and shapers of a, 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 their child's mind and their heart and their soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, the secretary of the Department of Education recently said that actually teachers know more uh, than the parents do. Yeah. Um, you being a champion of instilling a biblical worldview mm-hmm. in the next generation, you wrote your doctorate thesis mm-hmm. on this. Uh, you talked about the connection between the Christian day school and, and having a biblical worldview. Why does a biblical worldview just basically tear that argument? argument to shreds that teachers know more than parents and that we should basically just get off their backs and let them teach whatever we want them to teach to our children. Well, we could turn right to uh, the, the divine institution of the family. Yeah. You know, um, really appreciated um, as you've been preaching through uh, the confession recently and what happens in when we read Genesis through that lens mm. and we see how things were ordered and the structure of those things, um, you know, famously in, in our industry, everybody runs to Deuteronomy 6 to talk about the role of the right. parents. Uh, I prefer Psalm 78 because it's a gen- the first eight verses are both a pedagogical transition uh, uh, all the way through, but it's a generational one. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, both are obviously very, very mm-hmm. both very valid, but it, it shows that. And. You know, again, we've gotten confused. Parents, parents don't want to parent. What am I supposed to do? And our society is championing bureaucrats uh, you know, in this regard. Um, nobody is asking the question, on what basis would such a claim be made? Demonstrate how a teacher would know more about this than a parent. No. Uh, I, I, don't, no, I haven't heard anybody ask that question yet. It would be interesting the response of the it would and and I you know I guess in a strange way you can see how uh, the the hard left has sort of taken the opportunity that's been afforded saying sure. if you're gonna let us raise your children then we're gonna do the job where we're gonna raise them exactly the way that we want them to be you could almost wish that Christian parents and mass were as uh, dedicated to the the raising of their children as the left estate seems to be yes. so what needs to change and and you know you deal with a lot of Christian families, families who've made the, in many cases, the sacrificial choice to send Mm. their kids to a a school at expense to themselves to get a Christian education. What do you see needs to change? Maybe, maybe where do you find that that switch gets flipped in parents where they realize, you know what, this is the way I I, I cannot have my kids in this system. I have to put them someplace where God comes Mm. first. Well, I think it's, that's the role of um, ministries like this one, uh, it's also the role of the church, I think, is that it's being preached. Thank mm-hmm. God, our, thank God, ours faithfully does that. 
uh, it, it's hard for a school to convince parents that that's true. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it has to be from the places. Recently, we, we did an event um, showcasing our high school to our eighth grade parents. And I, uh, maybe it was a silly question to ask them, but I asked them to raise their hand. How many of them were consulting with their eighth grader on their investments? <laughs> uh, and bef- before your next stock purchase, are you going to ask your eighth grader their opinion? And, of course, no hands went up. And so then my query of them was then why are you asking them where they want to go to school? Mm. Because where they're going to school is a much more substantive question. Talk and, about an investment. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So I think those kinds of things – and I think parents – Christian parents coming to, to – shift from being passive to active. And, you know, you mentioned the radical left. What, you know, we were talking about this before we started a minute. Um, you know, that's, a, that's an ideological conviction. And one of the things to our shame, I think, in the, broad, in the Western church is we, we, we are not living in a, in a way where we're embracing the passion, the passion or pursuit of our theology mm. in the manner in which the radical left are embracing the radical pursuit of their ideology. Mm. And so we're seeing that, I think. So let's talk about Christian. I think that's a good segue into Christian education. Um, we've talked about higher education. We've talked about the public school system in America. In the 21st century, why is... Christian education so vitally important to a flourishing society? Mm, it's a great question. Think of it this way. Uh, I was just talking to some of our high school students about this recently. The amount of information that a 16-year-old is asked to uh, process from the time they get up in the morning until they walk in the gate of Westminster Academy is extraordinary. Mm. Just, just what they're being asked to process what do we think is going to happen if we're not giving them the tools to process it by? Mm. So recognizing that the 21st century is different. Mm. Uh, information is instantaneous. It's driven by pop culture and survey and crowdsourcing. And, and we, have to, we have to understand that and be able to talk with our students about that clearly, not out of fear, but out of equipping and empowering. Uh, I think that I think that's the way forward. Yeah, I, you know, I, I am a, a an elder. I'm not a senior pastor, as as you are, Rob. But we are churchmen. We are, uh, mm. you know, people involved in in making decisions and and even casting vision for churches and and for Christian institutions. I have been feeling more and more strongly lately, and I, I want to get your opinion on this, Joel, that, um, you know, when people ask me, what what can the church do? What what does the church need to do in the culture? How do we stop this slide? Um, I think the, the best answer, and I recognize this is easier said than done, it's do what Dr. Kennedy did. Start a school. Now, again, I know that not every church is equipped to do that, but frankly, when Dr. Kennedy decided to do it, it's not like it was just already sitting there waiting to be just to cut the ribbon. Somebody had to decide to fund that and to and to have a vision for that. But it seems to me that the 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 demand far exceeds the supply for Christian education mm-hmm. right now. And um, what can churches be doing to to facilitate that beyond just telling parents you need to get your kids mm. a Christian education, what what should churches actually be doing to make that happen? Well, it might help if seminaries started teaching pastors as you're coming through that mm. a Christian day school is really a great thing to have wow. and not a detriment. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And most of our seminaries aren't. Yeah. There's yeah. not a course on 
on that. Yep. That might be that may be a, a, an idea. I think to your point about this, our place uh, about Coral Ridge and, and Westminster in 1971. Not only was there not a school just to walk into, those parents believed in this so much and were motivated by this so much, they sent their children to rented space at the Pompano Beach horse track. Hmm. Now, if we were to go and start a school today in the 21st century, to your point, Rob, how many Christian parents would do that? Instead, they want a real blown full school experience. And that's wonderful. And and we're blessed to be in a place to provide that. But that wasn't the case in 1971. There's a pioneer spirit involved. And we've lost that. We're not in a pioneering season anymore. And I I appreciate that. And so it's not a hearkening to go back to that day. But but we ought not neglect uh, what fueled uh, those pioneers and to look at that. I'd also suggest maybe a single church, the, the, in today's economic reality, a single church may not have the resources, but a group of churches t- coming together uh, in a community could. And setting aside, uh, it's why, you know, what the, the confession is such a powerful tool maybe, Rob, to think about. Those are the things we can agree on. Let's come together around that and yep. shape Absolutely. and shape something and pool our resources of trying to go it alone. Mm-hmm. That would that would be one. And the other would be uh, we're thinking about this a little bit uh, more and more. And I'm talking with colleagues about this across the country. Christian school groups are thinking about rather than getting mega schools and bigger and bigger, which are still limited geographically. There's only so far people drive. Is what if we took a page from uh, churches and started thinking about planting schools? What would a planting school network look like? Mm. You know, we we have several church planting networks. Yeah. What about a school? Plan? What a yeah. school planting well, network. Now, now the diff the challenge there is just like with the church. There's a lot of capital at stake. Yeah. But it's a problem to solve. Yeah. When uh, Dr. Al Mohler was here uh, a couple years ago, he made the comment uh, concerning Coral Ridge and Westminster and said something along the lines of, if we needed as a society Coral Ridge and Westminster Academy in the 60s and 70s, how much more do we need them today? And I think that speaks for churches that are preaching God's word faithfully Mm. and Christian day schools that are continuing to advance the Mm. development of a biblical worldview in the next generation. I think it's so important to be reminded of the Christian day school and the role that it plays continues to play in the 21st century. I love your thoughts on this. Would it be fair to say that let's just take Westminster Academy as a model, uh, that the Christian day school that you're leading Westminster Academy actually looks more like the schools that were established in the founding of our nation than even the public school system of today. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. That there's a lot of similarities there. Of course there are. Yeah. Certainly there are. If we go back to those, you know, the, you know, those are founded. Our public school system were founded by Puritans. Yeah, right. Yep. They, they Harvard around founded biblical by literacy. Princeton. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Both our public schools and our and our higher ed, it, right, was yep. were very much theological in their orientation. That's what that's what they existed to do. Yeah, and, and that would very much square with where. Yeah, we're, it's, yeah it's just interesting no, when you hear people. Thought, yeah. yeah, when you hear people say, "Well, we're a secular nation and a Christian day school." What role does that play in America? Uh, you just have to look back in history and see the role that it played in both the public school system and and higher education. So when we think of a bit real quick, a, a biblical worldview, it's something that we talk a lot about on this show. We t- talk about at Westminster and Coleridge Presbyterian Church, for instance. For those that are tuning in for the first time, what do we mean by biblical worldview and how does it apply to what you're doing as a headmaster? 
the best way to think about a worldview, I think, is you can either use the image of a lens or a grid. So, you know, we all have one, how well developed and how intentionally, thoughtfully uh, trimmed and cultivated is it, but it's how we look at the world and make sense of it. A yeah. uh, biblical worldview then is uh, a worldview informed by the scripture that is intentionally shaped and cultivated so that we can uh, think Christianly, to borrow from an old um, Harry Blameyer's uh, title from mm-hmm. the 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's, so that's what we mean. We distill it in, in our, uh, at Westminster as we're training our faculty and having conversation around this into three fundamental questions. Who is God? What is the nature of man? And the third one, uh, I, I um, borrowed from uh, a friend of, of uh, our ministry, Oz Guinness, who I think mm-hmm. sat here recently. Yes. What do you do with freedom? Yeah, uh, and you you put those three together. I think the the freedom piece is 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 uh, us has pointed out is really germane to Americans. So so thinking about those, and then we look at everything that we're doing through that lens and how we're engaging students and how we're thinking about curriculum and discipline and and athletics and the arts. I mean, all of that has to inform what we're doing. And forming forming a biblical worldview has always required intention. You know, we live mm-hmm. in a fallen world. We are sinners ourselves. And so we're always being swayed away from a, a biblical worldview and toward a worldly view that's uh, got falsehoods mm-hmm. built into it. But never has it been more necessary to be intentional than now? Uh, you know, as as much as the world is always pushed against us, I we t- talked about this, Rob, many times on this program. But uh, and and you know, you're you're dealing with uh, you know pre K through 12, uh, 12th graders every day. The the onslaught, the the tsunami of stimulus, of mm. input, of of the world's messaging and the world's ideology from every corner, never ceasing. It's, you know, I grew up in the 80s, 70s and 80s. It's breathtaking compared to what I grew up with. And I was part of the TV generation. Sure, right. My parents thought what we were going through was breathtaking compared mm-hmm. to growing up with radio. But it's 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 profound now. Mm-hmm. And, and so the intentionality really has to be there more than ever. Absolutely. We just had uh, an opportunity to be with our upper school students this week, uh, memorializing a wonderful teacher who uh, succumbed to cancer recently, Gary Chapman. He was an almost two-decade teacher at Westminster. And it gave us a chance to ask something, maybe, John, that speaks to what you're saying. We were able to ask our students, uh, what does greatness look like? Mm. And and where is that being informed from? And it was interesting coming right off the Super Bowl and, you know, seeing, I think, two and a half million dollars was the cost for a 30-second spot in this, this year's Super Bowl, right? Yeah. And and people spending a lot of time trying to teach the world, teach us what does greatness look like. Mm. And Gary Chapman was a, was a man who, you know, so the world says you have to be rich, powerful, beautiful, influential, right? All, you know, all these things to be great. Gary Chapman was a man who um, made a very modest salary as a, as a fifth grade Christian school teacher. Mm. I, I, be, I believe if you think you look at his influence, uh, his eternal influence of the difference that he made, not just teaching students math, of which he was very good, mm-hmm. but the number of students that came through our school that Gary Chapman introduced them because at that age is a good time to the reality of their eternal destiny and who mm-hmm. Jesus is. Um, what an incalculable uh, 
influence. That's what greatness looks like. And I think calling that out, holding that up, because yes. the world is holding up this. We have to yep. we have to show them something else. We have to show them world showing counterfeit. We have to show them real. That's a good word. And, and, I, and I hope that every parent and grandparent and anyone that's concerned about the next generation listening to this podcast uh, takes a real hard, serious look at what's happening in mm. the state of education in America. But, but it doesn't just sit there and, and just uh, complain and uh, be overwhelmed by the cultural moment. But there are opportunities to do something about it. Right. Pr- prayerfully consider uh, where your child is being educated. Prayerfully consider where you're going to send them off uh, for four years of college and university. Um, and I think this is an, a great opportunity and moment to support Christian educational institutions and Christian educators. Yeah. Um, they, they exist in almost every city, in yeah. every region. Um, I want to give a plug to Westminster Academy. If if you're not familiar uh, with the ministry of WA, you can go to wa.edu, uh, find out more about this institution, uh, like I said, that has a legacy and an impact and influence all across the nation, if not the world. And uh, we're thankful for you, Joel, uh, for your commitment to the Christian Day School, commitment to a biblical worldview. Uh, it's a shining example in the midst of a very dark cultural moment, mm. uh, but it gives us great reason for hope. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Joel. Appreciate it. And that's a wrap for the City of God podcast. Uh, We pray that you enjoy this conversation on education with our good friend, Dr. Joel Satterley, who is the headmaster of Westminster Academy and also a contributor for the Institute for Faith and Culture. If you were encouraged or inspired by today's episode, we pray that you would pass this along to a family member or friend that wants to engage today's biggest cultural issues all through the lens of God's infallible word. Thank you once again for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the City of God. The City of God podcast is produced by Coral Ridge Ministries and made in partnership with the Institute for Faith and Culture. Visit us at cityofgodpodcast.com to access all of our previous episodes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or anywhere you get podcasts. A full video version of this podcast is available on YouTube. This is the City of God podcast where Christ meets culture.